1 Samuel 24, if you want to find where we are going to be this morning, 1 Samuel 24. We've been making our way this fall and winter and spring and summer and probably fall and winter through 1 and 2 Samuel. And where do we find ourselves? We find ourselves King David is in fact king, but the king sitting on the throne doesn't want him to be king. And so King Saul has been pursuing David to kill him. And David has been running for his life, going from here to there, one step ahead of King Saul on a routine basis. And in, in 1 Samuel 24 and 25, which is where we're going to be this morning, it's more accounts of David's flight, anointed as king, but nonetheless having to run for his life from King Saul. I've got to be honest, one of my favorite movies, and maybe I run the risk when I talk about movies that you'll be offended one of my favorite movies is The Count of Monte Cristo. Why is it my favorite movie? Because the book is really long and the movie only takes an hour and a half to watch. <laughs> but my understanding is Dumas wrote a fantastic book. At some point I'll have to crack it open. If you don't know the story, uh, the, uh, the main character has a massive injustice. His, his wife is taken from him. He is shipped off to... Uh, a, a horrific prison, and he spends his life plotting his revenge on the people who have wronged him. He escapes from prison, and because of his teacher in prison, the priest, he is able to find a massive treasure of gold. He's able then to, using his finances and his cunning as his training, to bring about his revenge slowly on his enemies. What he says to his a helper, Jacopo. Dying is too good for these people. I want them to know they have lost everything before they die. Here's a guy who wanted revenge, right? And Jacopo said to him at a certain point, you've won. You have all the money anyone could ever have. Your, your woman is back with you. Stop. You have won. And what did the Count of Monte Cristo say? I can't stop. I can't stop. The fact is, revenge, uh, it, it doesn't satisfy, it doesn't help. But we all have built into us this deep desire for justice and for things to be right. But revenge, it doesn't help. It doesn't satisfy like we might think it will. We think it'll make everything okay, and then when it's done, everything still doesn't seem okay. 1 Samuel 24 and 1 Samuel 25, and in fact, 1 Samuel 26, but there's no way we could cover three chapters in two hours that we're going to be here. They're revenge stories. We're not going to be here two hours. Simmer down. They're revenge stories. What's amazing, though, is they're revenge stories of revenge not taken. It's revenge stories, but instead of being revenge stories of David taking revenge, they're stories of revenge not taken on two different people. 1 Samuel 24, revenge not taken on Saul. Revenge not taken on Saul. Look with me at 1 Samuel 24. Saul had been out pursuing the Philistines, and he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. It's out to the north end of the Dead Sea, just to the east of the uh, Dead Sea's, I, I should say west, just west of the Dead Sea's western shore. So Saul took 3,000 young men that he had hand-selected, the best warriors of Israel, and he went out to find King David. How many men does David have with him? 
600. What were these men doing before they met King David? Complaining, being in debt, and being in despair. So King Saul is coming with 3,000 chosen warriors to destroy King David and his men. And King Saul, he comes to the sheep pen, and to the back of the sheep pen there was a cave. This was very common. There would be a cave in the wall of the uh, rock formation, and the shepherds would build a fence outside of the cave, and so that's where they would keep the sheep, and then at night they would run the sheep into the cave, and, the, and they could have some shelter and some protection. And so David and his men were way back in the back of the cave. It's a big cave, 600 men and their families. King Saul sees the sheep pen, and he sees the cave, and King Saul needs a, well, he needs a break. He goes into the cave, the Bible says in the New International Version anyway, to relieve himself. He was going to do what nature calls any person to do, and he took uh, the privacy of a cave to do so. He didn't even take his bodyguard into the cave. That would be weird. So he goes into the cave and uh, is doing what he must do. As King Saul is there, his men turn to David and say, David, the Lord has delivered your enemy into your hands. Look at what it says in verse 4. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I'll give your enemy into your hands. David was very sneaky, sneaky. He snuck up to King Saul, completely undetected, and cut off a corner of his robe and returned to his men. And the Bible tells us that after doing so, he returned to his men, and in verse 5 it says he was conscience-stricken. He was guilt-ridden. He had done the wrong thing. He realized, what have I done that I would even raise my hand against the king's anointed? The men had appealed to God saying, look, your enemy has been handed over to you. Now is your time to take revenge on King Saul. And David, though, is conscience-stricken. I should not raise my hand against King Saul. He didn't take revenge when it was most readily available to him. Could have killed King Saul. Walked out with his head in his hand and said, I am king. Give me the throne, right? But he said, no, this is not how things work. You do not raise your hand against the Lord's anointed. He cut off the hem of King Saul's robe. And if you remember back to 1 Samuel 15, uh, Samuel had turned, had told King Saul, Saul, that he had lost the kingdom because he had not wiped out the Amalekites. Listen, Samuel turned to leave after telling King Saul that he had lost the kingdom. Saul cut hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today. David, in cutting off the robe, the robe of the king and the hem of the king's robe was a sign of his authority and a sign of that, that he was in charge. And for David to cut off the robe, it wasn't just a funny joke. It was, it was a way to say, I have your authority. And he was conscience-stricken. He said, you know what, who gives authority? God gives authority. I don't take it for my own. And David was convicted, and he was conscience-stricken. So after King Saul had finished, he, he exited the cave and King David said this. This is verse 8 of 1 Samuel 24. King Saul is making his way out towards his men. He's probably not quite close enough to his men to have real protection. And David comes out and he says, My lord, the king. Saul turned around and he saw David. And David was on his face on the ground, prostrated. 
And David said this, listen. Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged that I would kill you, but I spared you. I said this, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. Verse 11, follow along with me. See, my father, look at the piece of robe in your hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. Verse 12, listen. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. May the Lord, this is verse 15, may the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. David appeals to the authority of God to say, you have wronged me, Saul. Make no mistake, Saul. You have done wrong to me. But I will not make it right through revenge. I will not take revenge on Saul. Instead, I will call the Lord into account and say, Lord, you judge between Saul and I, and you make right the what ought to be right. This was David's appeal. He did not deny the injustice he was dealing with. He did not say, oh, it, it's not too big a deal. I mean, Saul's going to die someday. No, no big whoop. We'll just, we'll just chill. No, he said, no, you have wronged me. I'm not going to minimize it. I'm not going to pretend it doesn't hurt. I'm not going to pretend it's not scary to run with an entire group of men and their families from the king who wants to wipe us all out. Saul, you are wrong. But I will trust that God will avenge, and I will not do it on my own. King David appealed to God for judgment. David also wrote about this in Psalm 57. You can turn there if you want. Or you can listen to me as I read Psalm 57. It's uh, not terribly long, is what he said. For the director of music to the tune of Do Not Destroy, so like we always say, just have that tune in your mind as I read it, of David, a miktam, when he had fled from Saul into the cave. Have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me, for, I, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me, King Saul. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. I am in the midst of lions. You can imagine him penning this with King Saul right there with his sword on his side. And he's saying, I'm in the midst of lions. I am forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp as swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. In fact, they dug a pit in my path, but they themselves fall into it. My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake my soul. Awake harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you 
among the peoples. For great is your love, reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. See, David did not take his refuge in a cave or in his sneaky ability to get close to the king. He took refuge in the Lord who would vindicate him. He took rest in the Lord who would rescue him. David's prayer was that the Lord would be his judge, that the Lord would decide between him and Saul, that the Lord would consider David's cause and, and, and rule in favor of David, that the Lord would uphold David's cause as the anointed king. In fact, his prayer was that David would vindicate him to such an extent that David says, I'm not going to take revenge. That's not my business. That's the Lord's job. I'm not going to take revenge on someone who is more powerful than I, someone who is infringing on my rights because they're so much more powerful than I am that I can't stop them. I will not take revenge on this one who is, who is vastly more influential than me, who has taken away my rights without asking, and, and I have a perfect opportunity to take my rights back. And David says, no, I'll let the Lord vindicate me. I'll rest in the Lord's justice. And David says, I will not take revenge. Saul's response at the end of this, we won't spend much time on it, but he weeps out loud and then acknowledges David's being right and he leaves for the time being. He'll be back. Revenge not taken on someone more powerful who is infringing on your rights. I wonder, do you have anybody like that in your life? Someone you just can't get over on? Maybe your boss. Maybe you volunteer with someplace and there's someone who's in charge and they're doing everything wrong. You know they're doing it all wrong. But you can't do anything about it. Maybe in your family, your extended family, there's someone who's getting their way and you can't do anything to stop it and it's wrecking everything that you want. Maybe in a competitor of yours in business, they've got the market cornered and they're ruining your business, ruining your opportunities. And an opportunity presents itself for you to drive the dagger in. The opportunity is there. I'm just going to touch on one way in which we take revenge on people more powerful than us, if you don't mind. If you do mind, you know what I say. I'm going to do it anyway. There's an old story about a captain on a ship who was not well liked by one of his crew members. Crew member couldn't get back at the captain on the ship because he's captain. So, but this crew member, though, would make the log entries. And so he started making the log entries every morning. Captain sober today. Which would insinuate, right, that some days he's not. We call this gossip. Where we say little things when we have little opportunities to destroy somebody because we don't have the ability to destroy them otherwise. So we're going to wreck their reputation. We're going to say something that's mostly true that will, that will drag them down a few notches. And over time, we're hoping that will be their new reputation. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels, it says in Proverbs 18.8. They go down to the inmost parts. Isn't it great when we hear something about somebody? Oh, that's... And what do we always say? I knew it. 
Um, I, you know, I, I, I had never seen that myself, but in the back of my mind, I knew it. And now that I've heard it from you, a fourth party three times removed, I'm sure it's true. I know it, and I wanted it to be true. Proverbs 26, 20, without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. And when we want to destroy somebody more powerful than us, the last thing we want is for the quarrel to die down because we want to drag them in and have them wreck themselves so that we can get our rights back. An opportunity has presented itself. Somebody who knows this influential person just like I know them, and I have a chance with my words to burn them alive. James 3, the other says this, we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us. We can turn an entire animal that way. And on ships, they're driven by large winds, but we can steer them with a rudder. The tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. A great forest is set on fire by a small spark. August is coming, folks. Spend a, we'll spend the whole month in smoke, right? We know what that's like. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. Listen, it corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Now that's a revenge-taking weapon. And we've all done it, and if you say you haven't, it's time to wakey-wakey. You have. We can take revenge on those in, that we can't influence otherwise. We're just going to slowly chip away at the reputation by tearing them down. It happens in families. It happens at work. It happens at, where's the other place it happens? Right here. Because we're a room full of peoples and people's gossip. But we have to be aware of what God is calling us to. He's calling us to say, you know what? I'm not going to take revenge. I'm not going to pull out the weapon of the fire of the tongue and do, get my revenge. I'm going to let the opportunity pass by Lord, you vindicate me. God, you have your revenge. Lord, you judge between me and this Yahoo. Revenge not taken. Letting the opportunity pass by and trusting the Lord will make the right, the real and true wrongs you've experienced. 1 Samuel 24 is David passing up the opportunity to take revenge on Saul, someone who is more powerful and influential than he at this point, and he passes up the opportunity to destroy him. 1 Samuel 25, David passes up the opportunity to take revenge on Nabal. Revenge not taken on Nabal. Someone who was less powerful than David. Here's what happens. David has been with his men. He has been watching over the region, ensuring that the uh, Jewish people are protected in their land, as the king ought to do. And Nabal, who was a Calebite, he was a descendant of Caleb, who was a stud. This guy was rich, this guy was awesome, and he was a surly, angry jerk. I don't know if you can say that. Well, we did, so there we go. David was protecting this man's sheep while his shepherds were out raising the, the sheep. And the story goes that none of his sheep went missing, which is unbelievable in that area that none of the Philistines were able to get in and take the sheep, that none of David's men touched the sheep. David was like a wall of protection around the sheep, and this is according to Nabal's own shepherds. So when it was sheep shearing time, all the sheep come in, and 
they shear the sheep, they throw a big old party. Everybody's happy. It's like, it's like harvest time. Nabal was having a great time. Everybody was shearing sheep. You know how that. We've all been to big sheep shearing parties, right? Maybe not, right? Okay. David sends 10 of his men to Nabal and says, hey, guess what, Nabal, it's all good. We, we provide a lot of protection for your men. We provide a lot of protection for your sheep. We just want, you know, you got a little something. I think in the Hebrew it says, hey, can you hook a brother up? Maybe just a little something tied the guys over to let them know you appreciate the safety that you provided. And Nabal says, who is this son of Jesse? And he said it with a big sneer on his face. Who is, who is this also ran son of Jesse? You know what, nowadays everybody's fleeing from their master and taking up on their own. Who is this guy? Get out of here. You will get nothing from me. So the man returned to David and said, David, here's what Nabal said. Who are you? And what did David say? You can read the story on your own. Strap on your swords, fellas. It's time to get busy. So he gets 400 of the guys. They mount up, and he says, not a single male will remain alive in Saul's household. He leaves 200 guys with the baggage to make sure nobody can bother the families, their families and children in, in their stores. And he takes 400 men, and he's going to destroy Nabal and every male in Nabal's household. Abigail, though, is Nabal's wife. And Abigail hears that Nabal has been an idiot. And I'm being polite. Nabal has been a moron, still being polite. And so what she does, when she hears from the servants that David is coming to wipe them out, she collects a massive store of bread and wine and raisin cakes. That's a thing, I guess. They're like Laura Brothers or something. And so she collects this big thing, and she takes a large contingent of people to meet with David. And so she gives this giant gift to David. And this is what she says to him. Look with me at 1 Samuel 25, verse 20. She came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, and there was David coming with his men. And David had just been saying this, it's been useless. All my watching over this guy's property in the wilderness so that nothing was missing. He's paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive any one male of all who belong to him. David was really angry. In fact, he was so angry he used sort of a crude term there. Thankfully, our English versions say alive anyone male. He says, if I leave alive anyone who pees on the wall. And I'm not kidding. That's, that's how he said it. Any guy who, anybody who stands up to go to the bathroom. He was angry. I'm going to kill them all. I will take revenge because I have the power to do so. He's not like Saul. Remember Saul? He couldn't, what's he going to do? Saul's the powerful one. Now he's got Nabal, this, this a moron who doesn't even know how to manage his affairs. And David goes, and he's on his way. Abigail falls at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my lord. Verse 24. Let me speak. Hear what I have to say. Pay no attention to Nabal. He's a fool. Pay no attention to him. As for me, I didn't know that you guys were, had come. Now, Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, May your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like my husband, a fool. 
So Abigail here now is interceding for David, saying, keep yourself from avenging yourself. Keep yourself from blood guilt. Please forgive your servant's presumption, she says. The Lord your God will make you a lasting dynasty because you fight the Lord's battle and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. The lives of your enemies, she says, will be hurled away as from a pocket of a sling. I think she prepared this speech, didn't she? Remember, David? Just like you killed Goliath, that's what's going to happen to everybody else. Don't tarnish your reputation by killing this fool. And David says, praise God that you came and stopped me. Praise the Lord for you and for your intercession. Praise the Lord for his blessing on my life that you have kept me from blood guilt. And he refuses to take revenge on Nabal. Abigail leaves the gift with David and she returns home and she finds Nabal in the midst of the party. The Bible describes their party fit for a king and they are eating food and eating grain and they are drinking wine. The Bible says he is filled. He was, he was very drunk. Nabal's joy, his, the joy he found in life was all, all of his provision, all of his grain. He didn't have to worry about anything and, and filling himself with the joy of, of drinking. He was, he was hoarding himself. Hoarding his grain. He wouldn't give to David to his own detriment. Uh, hoarding his wine to his own detriment. And David wants to offend this guy. I have one more psalm I want to look like, if you'll pardon. You don't mind, do you? Psalm 73. It's not written by David. It's written by Asaph. But this is, this is really good. When you look at Nabal, the rich, happy, full guy, and then David, just hanging on by a thread. Listen what the psalm says. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Verse 2. As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I love that. Bible author saying he almost slipped. My feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold because why? I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. Their hearts are callous. They scoff. They are full of malice. They are arrogant. People turn to them and drink up their waters. They say, and he says this, how, how would God know that, how does the Most High know anything? He, he says, this is what the wicked are like. They're always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Listen, verse 13. Tell me if you've ever said this. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Can you see David saying something like that when, when Nabal and all his wickedness is just overflowing with wealth and food and wine and David is just hanging on by a thread, just asking for a little something to tide him over and he says, it's in vain I've kept myself pure. Where is God? Look, the wicked prosper and I'm left hanging. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning I have new punishments. And this is David. But Abigail intercedes for David. And she says, no, David, rest in the faithfulness of God. That you might repentantly pray like the psalmist does in verse 21 of Psalm 73. My heart was grieved. My spirit was embittered. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. But I am always with you, 
and you hold me in my right hand, in your right hand, I should say. Abigail interceded and prevented David from doing, from acting like a brute beast and taking his revenge out on Nabal. And God blesses her for it and blesses David for it. The next morning, Nabal, which the Bible sort of refers to as a wineskin, and then it says the wine has gone out of him, meaning he was sobering up, probably had a bit of a headache, and his wife Abigail turns to him, hey, Nabal, now that you've got your wits about you, let me explain to you what happened this weekend. David had 400 men coming here bent on killing you and our entire household. The Bible says he became like a stone, and for 10 days he laid like a comatose stone in his bed, and after 10 days the, uh, God struck him and he died. And David praised the Lord saying, look, I didn't have to have revenge on my enemy. God did it for me. God interceded. God then calls Abigail, and they get married. They have at least one child together over time. David would say to Abigail, praise God for sending you. Praise God for your good judgment. Thank you for interceding me, interceding on behalf of the Lord so that now Nabal is dead because God's way is righteous and good. Revenge not taken on Nabal, or as we might say it this way, revenge not taken on one who has wronged me. And again, same drill. Anybody in your life who has, they just simply have wronged you. Of course, you're human. There's somebody like that. They have wronged you, and you, you would love the opportunity, like David with a group of men, to destroy them. You know where they get their joy and their happiness, and you have the ability to take it. And so you do. They have wronged me, and I know what makes them happy, and I have the ability to take it, so I will. It's probably not you, it's probably just me, that maybe with these people that you're thinking about, you have arguments with them in your own mind. I mean, never actually with them, right? You have arguments with them in your own mind. Who always wins that argument? When you're talking with them in your head, not actually with them in person, but when you're talking with them about this issue in your mind, you always win that argument, don't you? And so that gives you the right, the first opportunity you have to seize from them that joy and their happiness. I will take it because they have wronged me. And what we discover in David is this character of saying, you know what, I'm going to let God figure that out. I'm going to let them figure out that whatever brings them joy and happiness, if it's not the Lord, it always fades. Like Nabal, his wine faded, his grain runs out. And David saying, you know what? It's not for me. I'm not going to have blood guilt on my hands. I'm not going to take revenge on one who has wronged me that I have the ability to take revenge on. Two ideas, two thoughts here on David in this. Revenge not taken on Saul. Not taken on revenge, not taken on someone who is more powerful than me and, and me taking the opportunity to destroy them with my words, perhaps. And revenge not taken on Nabal. Someone I have the, the ability to remove their joy and happiness and I'm going to do it as a way of righting wrongs. David doesn't take revenge. Just one last thought before we get ready to take communion. 
what's really fantastic about this is not David not taking revenge. But what's really fantastic about this is David stands in here for us, for our Lord. This is something, if you don't remember anything else today, I want you to remember this. Are you listening? Jesus does not take revenge. Did you hear me? Jesus does not take revenge. Now, some of you, I know how you work because you're like me. You don't know what I've done. Jesus does not take revenge. See, in the story of Saul in the cave, we like to think of ourselves as David. Okay, I want to be like David and uh, make sure that I don't take revenge. No, no, no. In that story, we're Saul. And if we had our way, we would kill the king so we could be king. If we had our way, we would kill Jesus so we could be Jesus. That's what it means to be separated from God. The irritating about thing about God is he doesn't share the God stuff. He wants us to be his children. And, and we want to destroy God and supplant his authority with our own. And thank the Lord we have a, a God in Christ who says, I'm not going to take revenge. That when we wanted to kill him, if, if we were standing at the cross on the day he died, we would have picked up a hammer. If he was on the cross and we were there, we would have stuck the spear in his side. And he says, no, I'm not going to take revenge. In the story of David and Nabal, we're not David seeking to overcome our wrongs with others. We're Nabal seeking to fill our life with happiness and, and plenty and food and drink and whatever turns your crank. And we tell Jesus, you know, we love you, Jesus, but what I really need is a little bit of Jesus with a good job, a little bit of Jesus with a good family. And Jesus, what does he do? He doesn't take revenge. He doesn't take revenge. David humbled himself. He fell on his face before Saul. David humbled himself and missed the opportunity for a glorious victory over Nabal's family. David even humbled himself in some ways by marrying Abigail. He takes on the rule of kinsman redeemer to ensure that her family and her land always has an heir. And Jesus humbled himself in the garden and he fell on his face, didn't he? And he humbled himself by gain, gaining victory for us, not through a glorious mil military victory, but he gained victory for us by voluntarily dying. He doesn't take revenge. Three things to think about in regard to that. Jesus doesn't take revenge, so I want you to think about these three things. You don't have to write these down. If you like writing things down, this might be worth it. Since Jesus doesn't take revenge on us, in all our King Saul and Nabal-ish ways, and those are now officially words, Christ followers should be all right being harmed rather than getting back at people. If Jesus doesn't take a revenge on us, then as Christ flows into us, we should be all right with actually being harmed rather than getting back at others. I'll just read it very quickly. That's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You have lawsuits among you, which means you have been completely defeated already, Paul says to the church in Corinth. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves are cheat and you wrong one another and, and you're defeated. This is what he says. Why not rather be wronged? Think about it this way for the people who have wronged you in your life. What would it mean if you never had it fixed 
What would it mean for you if they never saw it your way? What would it mean for you if they never finally came around to your point of view? We can seek the Lord and say, Lord, I need you to fill me with such fullness of you that I would be okay with that. Because if I need them to be right, for me to be right, I'm trusting in them and not our Savior. First thing, Christ followers should be all right being harmed rather than getting back at people. Secondly, Christ followers should learn to have no need to have things go their way. I know, now you're getting irritated with me, but just listen. I know, this is what we are. No, I don't need things to go my way, but I'm just, I'm just right so often. Philippians 1, 12 through 18, this is the Apostle Paul. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel, meaning being in prison. I don't think Paul wanted to go to jail. Things weren't going his way, and he's saying, no, listen, things have worked out. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard that I am in chains for Christ. Yay. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become more confident, and they proclaim the gospel without fear. Yay. Worse than that, some of people are now preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, knowing that I'm in jail, trying to pick up all my converts. And what does he say? Yes, the gospel is preached. I don't need things to go my way. I don't need to be the head honcho. I don't need to be more popular than my rivals, those who would preach Christ out of uh, selfish ambition, because I don't need things to go my way. Think about it this way as a way of diagnosing your own heart. Have you ever had a situation, maybe where you work or where you volunteer or here at the church, where, where something good was done, something really good was done, but they didn't do it the way you want it done? I mean, yeah, I guess it was okay. If they would have done it my way, it would have been so much better. Can you still be okay with the good when it doesn't, wasn't done right? When it, done, it was done all kinds of wrong. Good was still done. You know what? I don't have to think, have things go my way. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Things aren't going to go your way. And because Christ doesn't take revenge on us, we don't have to spit, stew and soak and say, Lord, why won't things go right? He say, things will never go right. Can you be okay with that? Can you rest in the fact that I will take all of the things not going right and make them right? It may, though, mean that instead of you being glorified, Christ would say, I am glorified. Finally, and this is most important, Christ followers bless each other with a spirit of reckless grace. Reckless grace, meaning grace that's over the top. It's kooky. John 17, he says, I want you to be so full of the good news and so full of joy and so full of love that the world says, what is wrong with those people? I've seen them. They should not get along. Acts chapter 2, all these former enemies had gathered in Israel, in Jerusalem, and Peter had preached the sermon, and they all got saved, and it says they all had everything in common. People who should have been arguing and fighting, they had everything in common in Christ. They had a spirit of reckless grace. Exodus 23, this is what we read, just very quickly. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, I know this happens all the time. 
Come across your enemy's ox or donkey or their wallet or their F-150. Be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you, if you see the donkey of someone who wants you dead, falling down under its load, don't leave it there. Help it up. Get it going along. Reckless grace. Romans 12. Last verse, and then we'll conclude. It's too important to skip, though, so. Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Guess what? In order to live in harmony with one another, you don't get your way. Nobody gets their way to live in harmony. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Listen, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, do not, excuse me, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Christ followers, bless one another with a a spirit of reckless grace. Why would we do that? Because that's how Jesus does it. He, He enters our world and he gives us a spirit of reckless grace. He dies on the cross and says, I'll pay for whatever you've done. I'm sorry, what? That seems a little reckless. Jesus himself is harmed to extend to us reckless grace. Jesus lets go of his own way in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember what he prayed? Lord, not my will, but what? Yours be done. I don't need my way. He pours it out on us. And he gives us the victory through his resurrection. Christ followers, we can be all right being harmed. We don't need to have things going our way. And most importantly, we can bless others with a spirit of reckless grace. Revenge not taken. Jesus took no revenge on us.